Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 58 with Joseph Makos and Joseph Biavin. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. Chicago writers. So, um, my co-curator of Red River series in Chicago, Laura Goldstein, and I really felt like it was important to involve the Chicago community in, in this new festival. So, thanks for having us. We're so glad to be here. Very cool. Is there anything? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag about our floral festivals, but no. Is there? Is there? It anything, is very cool. Listening. Is there anything going? Is there anything going on in Chicago that's like akin to? You know, I know we had. I know years ago we had this like uh, Midwest small press fest thing, but. Um, I, I haven't seen that for a while, but anything? Yeah, the Midwest Small Press Fest happens in Milwaukee a few yeah. times, and that was great, and a lot of Chicago people were involved with that, including myself um, and Laura, for sure. Um, we've been doing a printer's ball, kind of printmaking festival That's in the summertime. Right, okay. um, it was originally started by the Poetry Foundation, but now it's back to its DIY roots, which a lot of us really seem to happy about. There's a lot of pop-up kind of book expos that happen, small small press things. Sometimes at schools, sometimes at libraries, sometimes at art spaces. Um, and then there's other kind of smaller festivals that happen that might be more um, specific to a certain kind of like aesthetic or genre. We've been doing a Poets Theater Festival. Um, Lynx Hall is a performance art space. Sometimes there's like kind of dance and poetry or poetry and film kind of festival. The creative community is really big in Chicago. Um, and there's a lot of collaboration that happens. So I think some of the festivals are about interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, bringing together. Yeah, people. yeah, yeah. We were just talking about that downstairs, just uh, just about sort of how uh, you know we have a we have a New Orleans book fair, and then we had a, we had we even had a New Orleans Anarchist book fair for a little while, and then uh, you know we had um, we have a, we have a comics and scenes festival, and each each there's a little bit of overlap. Uh, between them, but I, I actually don't see as, as much overlap between this festival, comics and zine, mm. and, uh, and, the, and the, the small, uh, the small, sorry, the book fair. That I think there could be, you know, and like the idea of bringing community together. There's going to be overlaps between all these different festivals. Anyway. It seems like the poets are overlap. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I should mention too, Chicago also has a really big comic book and zine culture, and so there's quite a few festivals around there. And then there's poetry, comics, um, and a lot of like writers um, who, like for example, are maybe part of 
the communities that come out of the Art Institute or Columbia College, Chicago. So like a lot of like image and text work that comes out of those kind of communities and scenes um, and zine and bookmaking that happens too. So yeah, I like the idea of thinking about this. If we were going to like formal or informally map community, thinking about the overlap for sure. Yeah. There's a lot there. Uh, so you run a, you run a um, series that's going with Red Rovers on what number now? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I believe we're probably at 108 or 109. Yeah, I'm not great with numbers. We broke 100. Um, we started in 2005, so we also like surpassed our, made it through over 10 years, which when you're reading series is kind of a big deal. Um, we think of ourselves as an interdisciplinary reading series. When we started out, um, what we don't want to be is what, what we're not. This is what we're not is the writer standing in front of the podium. Uh, yeah. What we're not is a reading in a bookstore or reading in a bar. We have all those things in Chicago. I'm sure you have them here in New Orleans. Those are great things, but we want to be an alternative. Uh, we like to bring in aspects of collaboration. We like to bring up aspects of interdisciplinary. Again, maybe a dancer uh, who uses text in some way or a filmmaker. Uh, we physically set up the space different each time. We've always used open spaces, mostly like dance rehearsal spaces. Sure. You give us a big empty room and some chairs, and we'll find a good way to situate the audience where they're maybe slightly uncomfortable, but very um, interested to see what's going to happen. I remember, I, 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 I can't, I, I'm trying to remember, but I think the AWP was in Chicago. Like maybe. We had two of them pretty close yeah. together. Yeah, I remember going there, walk around over reading where it was like, Next to a bar, we had to go like up a whole up a set of stairs and do an upstairs of a corner. I think that was the old Lynx Hall space. That must have been yeah, yeah. So sometimes we've used um, we have like kind of home spaces we used, but we used other kind of larger spaces for big events. Um, the last that was the first time we hosted some ADBP stuff offsite. The last time we did ADBP offsite. Um, our current art space has kind of two parts of the dance, two rooms of the dance space. So we had two rooms of poets walking around and reading and the audience kind of mingling. Uh, and so at one point you just couldn't tell who was a reader and who was the audience. Um, but it was fun to open it up and have like literally two physical rooms of that. Yeah. Uh, well, great. Uh, well, I, well, so uh, Red Rover's moving forward. You got a lot going on with that. And you have, uh, it, it seems to, in my mind when I think of collaborative Performance poetry in Chicago. I think of Jennifer Herman. So well, I think, thank you. You know, I think that yeah. you've been doing a lot of that uh, sort of work. Um, and uh, I guess, like, I like the I, I, I like really poets who have an open mind in looking at like art and intersections between different you know different um, different forms. Whether it's like you said, filmmaking or the idea behind Red Rovers. Like, there's you know, you're combining another type of art in, with it. I think it makes the work richer. Uh, but tell us about some. Can you tell us about some things you're working on? Uh, yeah, I think I just want to address collaboration in general about Chicago too. Um, you know, I think Chicago is a really easy place. Just thanks for the shout out to me, but I'll do the shout out to the Chicago creative please, community please, yeah. in general. Um, I think there's a lot of collaboration that happens, and um, maybe I know this is sometimes things you guys address in your work too. But like the idea of economics of place. I think it's important here. I think because we don't have the same kind of financial pressures um, as maybe cities like L.A. and San Francisco and New York. There's studio spaces. It's cheap to get a studio space, maybe cheaper than other places like the other big cities, a dance rehearsal space. So I think when there's not as much 
economic pressure, there's more like sharing of the work and more time for experimentation. Um, not the same kind of financial and professional pressures, um, which I appreciate, to be honest, as a working poet and a working artist. And I feel like, again, a lot of my dance friends, my filmmaker friends, my visual artist friends feel the same way. We can take time for the work to develop, maybe in a different way in Chicago than in some of the other big cities. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although it seems like it's not as cheap as it used to be. I think uh, real estate's going up everywhere, for yeah. sure. Um, well, that felt like the promise for me in New Orleans when I moved here, you know, seven years ago. It used to be. You know, I had shift. How does it feel now? Yeah. And, like, I'm, you know, I'm, like, I'm still considering, like, I'm still dreaming and considering about that. You know, what is my house guests from Cleveland who are here, uh, who are here now, um, they say, you know, last time, it's like, let's get this 30,000 square foot building in Cleveland that only wants $16,000 for it. And I'm like, oh my God, you know? But I, but I still think of that too, that, 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 that 2,000, 3,000 square foot space and you can still get up in the Midwest for you know, 800 to 1,200. And shout out, to, shout out to the Great Lakes. I grew up in Buffalo. I mean, there's something, again, great about DIY culture in places like yeah. Buffalo. Cleveland, it's not so expensive to live. People yeah, don't have to have Pittsburgh. as many jobs, right? I mean, um, People don't have to worry as much about how they're going to pay their bills, so they have more time to have access to these spaces and build them up, for sure. Yeah, yeah. and it still exists. I just think, yeah, I do think that that money stuff makes it hard, right? And I think finding those places in big cities, there's not as many of them as there used to be. Some people still are finding ways to do it. Yeah. No, well, there's been also, I remember in Chicago, I think it wasn't before maybe one of the big RNCs or big convention. There was a pretty major crackdown on DIY spaces, wasn't there a number of years ago? Well, our mayor, our current mayor, um, and our past mayors and our police department decides at different times uh, when they want to kind of crack down on these spaces. And so, yes, they have used political reasons. Um, There's a lot of things with licenses in Chicago, so um, a specific kind of point is like, do you have a public place of amusement license? Like, are you licensed to have a show? But there's, as usual, ways to talk about language. Like, well, it's not a show, it's a salon, or it's a dance space that does a showing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if we look at creative history and creative communities, we can talk about how artists and writers and performers have done this sure. in, in so, so many ways, for sure. Um, Collaborations. I'm continuing to work with with Bernadette Mayer um, on poetry. I usually go visit her in the summer. Um, sometimes we also send things through the mail. Uh, I have a really great dance collaborator in Chicago. His name. Shout out to Jason Howard. He's a wonderful writer um, and dancer. He and I have a series of performances called Utopic Monster Theory. Um, we've taken on a few topics um, about being a cultural worker and just about trying to get through this period of history in the United States. So. Um, we did a piece on breathing, uh, thinking about police brutality and, and um, the shootings specifically of Laquan McDonald that happened in Chicago. Uh, we did a piece on democracy kind of leading up to the election and I guess the defeatist feeling after the election. Um, and I think we're starting to work on, just this summer, issues of control, um, thinking about fascism but also like what does it mean within cultural work to try to not control each other, but like that part of collaboration where the third mind happens and giving up of itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like the politics of control both for the country, but also like within creative community and within collaboration. So how how does that collaboration work? Do y'all 
do you compose the same time he's coming up with the choreography or is it kind of we I would think of them as vignettes um, we recycle material we write together Jason's also had me do choreography which has been great I have a, a limited but somewhat theater performance and movement background um, but it's great to access that more um, it's worked in all it's worked in a lot of different kinds of ways Jason feels like an important collaborator to me in the past few years. Um, he identifies a, as black and, and queer, um, and he has a, a movement practice that encompasses like all different kinds of sizes of bodies. And um, it's good; it pushes me as a poet. And I would just say, like talking in general about collaboration, I think that's part of it. Is that I've been writing for more than twenty years now, um, what I consider some form of poetry. And it's nice to be in situations where people kind of push you to think and write and create in new ways. Uh, be that someone as experienced as Bernadette, or be that um, Jason Howard, my current dance collaborator. I have a, another collaboration going on with the Chicago poet Kenyatta Rogers. We've been exploring both the idea of dope, the actual drug, yeah. cannabis, um, but also uh, we started looking at a Mary Baraka's poem, Dope, uh, which is a critique of capitalism. And we've been writing in typewriters. He, he's a poet who sometimes does typewriter projects. So that's also been great because within that collaboration, um, none of it's been published yet, by the way. We're still thinking about what it's going to look like as uh, if it's outside of a typewritten page. Like, what am I looking yeah, like yeah. As, as a published work? Um, but a lot of issues of race and class have come up for both of us. Um, he's actually an Ohio poet, too. So just that kind of great, again, that Great Lakes working class culture um, that we both grew up in. But also, um, you know, if Kenyatta writes a line where, uh, as a black poet, he uses the term nigga, how am I going to read that as his white collaborator? And then yeah. that actually gets addressed within the poem. Like, am I comfortable using that in, in a public reading space? And I don't have an answer for that right now in this podcast. Yeah. But, but I'm just letting you know that these are... Uh, some ideas that are surfacing through, through this writing with, with Kenyatta Rogers for sure. Yeah, that's how do you own that? How do you own that? How do you own that? How do you how do you repossess the word? Uh, how do you own it? Uh, if my collaborator writes, is it okay for me to say it? Like, right? Sure. Yeah. Is there? Yeah. Is there like is there like permit? You know? Is there like a permission slip kind of sign? You know? Or like you know? Well, I, yeah, I think that that's yeah. Those are the, that that's like a lot of some cool stuff to come up in collaboration. I guess and like some uh, things to work through. Um, uh, I guess working through something like that can really make you stronger as the understanding how to use language and social context and what should be protected and by who. You know, who are the gatekeepers and who are who, who's protecting what? Um, uh, yeah, I, I like to have my boundaries actively challenged. I, mean, I think I always have, but particularly. Um, not as a not being a twenty-something poet anymore, <laughs> even more important to like challenge my identity on and off the page. I would say, yeah, yeah it's something you do less as you're older, so it's good to be putting yourself in a position where you I, have to. You know. I know I can get up there and read a poem and sound really nice. So yeah. I'd, I'd like to be pushed to do some other things, and I think through the performance work I've done too, the group performances where we use improv, that's also part of why, whether through Red Rover or like my work with the textile and Epic Alice, that has felt really important to me to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like a tip. it's like doing new form, you know, it's like uh, bringing in new form, like even the idea of our event that we had here Friday night, which was comedy poetry, I mean, that was raw. 
I loved it. Was, yeah, but it was but 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 the cool thing was that as a poet, you know, uh, I guess we're like very comfortable and akin to this sort of like mic reading type of situation. You know, as far as like doing being up in front of people and performing and reading, and I think like I think like that's that's like a big uh, a leap for a lot of comedic comedians to get them to do that. It's very challenging for them. To actually, that's one of the issues that a lot of young comics have is like actually getting up there and reading. But I think like the open mic, maybe when you're reading poetry, is a little bit more friendly. So you felt totally comfortable jumping up during the poetry comedy open mic and throwing down a piece, you know? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I read from some of the poems that Bernard and I have published and worked on together, and, um, and that book's titled "The Sexual Organs of the IRS and, and Other Poems." Yeah, so there's already you know already starting out with a little bit of yeah, that's and that was published in oh, shout out to, to Nate Hawks. That was published in Chicago by Convulsive Editions. He also just Convulsive Editions, yeah, also just just did your your beautiful chapbook. Yeah, and Nate's list, regular listeners who remember Nate came on for one of yeah. our six episodes. You know, heard of episode. Oh, that's great. And and his wife Nikki. Also, shout out to Nikki. Part of Compulsive Editions. Well, they, they do that together. We don't want to leave Nikki out. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's interesting because Bernadette, uh, even outside of our collaboration, has often talked to me about the fact that um, she does think there's something for her akin to being a stand up comedian and being a poet. Um, being on the kind of vulnerability, I mean, I'm paraphrasing things she's talked about, but the kind of vulnerability that you yeah. kind of expected to show in some ways on the stage. The, the wit that's again kind of expected in, in some way um, I'll be honest too it made me think being at that event that you guys created and organized is really just a great space and a great event um, also as a woman it's interesting like what does it mean to be a funny woman poet right like I feel like that's, I feel like that's an unexplored territory though because there's kind of the idiom of this very serious female poet Sylvia Plath and sex and so it's just kind of interesting to think about like particular is there is there, I don't know, podcast listeners or anyone else listening, is there a kind of like feminist wit that's involved with contemporary American poetry? Maybe write a paper, do a panel. That's not, I mean, I, I don't know if that's my project to do, but it made me think, yeah. think about I think, that. I think there yeah. is, I mean, I would, I would really have to dig through the bookshelf a little to find some, but I think it exists. But. As far as a contemporary of mine, yeah. I think about so Summer Browning is a, hey, Summer, I hope you're listening, is a really funny and smart poet um and uses comedy and does poetry comics in some ways and so anyways yeah i think i think there's a project in there for somebody one of the co one of the co one of the hosts uh that night was paul oswald myself and uh and uh and she uh she was amazing she, she read poetry she didn't read comedy and this was like i'm just gonna read poetry and she came up there and she read some really personal stuff and it was, I think, for her, I, I talked to her after and how happy she was with that posting and that and bringing all these different worlds in. For her, who, you know, she posts a lot of comedy things. She hosts a lot of comedy nights and she's like, yeah, this was completely different than like, what we're used to with the comedy night. And it like allowed people to like explore different material. It allowed her, even as a comedian, to open up and read her poetry, which she doesn't, she said she usually doesn't do. Mm. So that was cool for her. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a nice thing about doing stuff like that. But yeah, I was thinking that too. It probably for the comedians makes them think about that's a totally different thing for them too. Like, I mean, as poets, we're sitting there thinking about, oh, how does this change what you're doing? Or it makes you think about maybe things you haven't thought of. How does this fit in in comedy? Where do these things intersect? Where do they not intersect? Well, and 
again, there's a kind of poetry reading. I mean, I'm not told that there's many kinds of kinds we haven't even imagined, but I think there's a stereotypical kind of poetry reading that is, again, the writer behind the podium, yeah. very serious, very earnest. Um, and so there's just something great about saying, well, this could be comedy too, right? They, they yeah. have to say that line that every poet what behind is the podium, uh, I think I'll just read two more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get to be so irritated yeah, when they say that. I mean, often if I'm put in a situation where there's a podium, the first thing I do is like, when I get up to read it, I move the or I physically find a way to, to, to just change my body because there is something where you can literally hide behind it physically, but also yeah. maybe uh, a certain kind of mask of not being earnest again with your reading or not being, I don't want to say genuine, but not maybe um, being in the moment. I, I asked, actually talked to Doug Kearney. We hung out after his wonderful reading last night. Shout out to Doug Kearney. Um, he said he likes to approach the poetry reading like he's not, give, not giving a poetry reading. And I was like, that's, that's great. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think that there's, there's value in that because I think that what happens is, you know, um, we do go to those sort of common, and look, those types of poetry readings, you said, like, oh, the ones we, I had never imagined. But, you know, more, more times than not, like, if you go to a, look, if you go to a slam event, there's rules around it falls into a constraint. A and there is a cadence that we yes, can there often hear at the slam. Yeah. And you hear that cadence too, though, and it's going through it's an true. There's, there's, there's a poetry voice that we can also use. <laughs> so I just think, like, you know, so when you follow the formulas, you know, you, 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 have, you have this thing with slam where everything falls into this three-minute formula. And a three-minute, 15-second formula. And I think that that's in a certain way that actually is the worst part of it. Well, I also think, um, I mean, Slam originated in Chicago, so it's interesting in Chicago when people call me a performance poet because, yes, I definitely utilize <laughs> performance, but it has, in Chicago, a connotation of Slam. Yeah, yeah. And um, I am not interested in um, Slams as events because, you know, the idea is to slam someone is to put them down. I'm the best poet, or my poetry team's the best. Yeah, I'm not yeah. interested in poetry as a competition. I feel like that mimics capitalism, American yeah, capitalism. Does, and in yeah. fact, that's why it seems to me and some others that slam is like one of the first kinds of poetry that was used for advertising, right? Well, like, yeah, so true. putting it in commercials. Now, we could say that on the academic side, we're all com- competing for grants, for jobs, for other kinds of... A place at the festival, so like I will acknowledge that capitalism puts us in comp- our labor is in competition all the time, whether it's unpaid labor or not. Um, yeah, but, but I think yeah, I think that's the negative part of academics too. And I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not, I can't speak for y'all, but I would imagine because of the kind of work that you publish, that that's not your main concern. Like, I'd rather just publish something that I like and have it be nice, and not I don't really care. I don't expect it to get an award or. Or, or or be, you know, picked up by one of these. I mean, I, there are certain magazines that I really I wouldn't want to be associated with, even though they're the big players, because I just, yeah, it does become a capitalistic thing in that way too, right? Which, but that's not all that poetry academia is. But that's well, and that's not all that slam is. It's but not I, all that I slam think it's is important. Either, yeah. I think it's important to examine those things. Um, I mean, I think, okay. On the flip side, I think Islam, particularly in Chicago and now even around the world, 
it's brought a lot of people into poetry who didn't think poetry was Yes, true. and that is the positive Young thing people, of, it, yeah. of course, people of color, the queer community, Muslim women. I mean, it's wonderful to see yeah. all these people feel like poetry, they have an access into poetry. So I think slam's a good gateway drug. There's a lot of good gate- there's poetry gateway yeah, drugs yeah, out yeah, there. Sure. Um, when I have students who are involved in slam, I try to remind them also to think about... Um, you know, what does this mean for the, I think, you know, the page or the stage kind of poetics, like what does that mean for going back to the page in some way? Um, if you're going to be performing, what does that mean for a performance style to evolve? I think the kind of slam, the kind of cadence we were just talking about, uh, to me it seems like it hasn't really, so that started really the, even the late 70s in Chicago. It doesn't seem like it's really evolved that much as a performance style or idiom. Um, but I think there in other countries it's done some interesting mashups for sure. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I've seen some interesting things, especially coming out of some of the Asian countries that people people do some very different things with slam and performance poetry and happen here. But yeah, I wish I wish it was a little more open to that because I mean I think that's one of the I mean we've talked about this on, on here before. We talked about this with Chris Champagne who performed at the Night too, because he used to do and slam poetry and there's I mean that's fine if there's kind of this standard thing but it doesn't feel like there's and there doesn't feel like there's really a place even for someone really who's good to do something that different it feels like the people who are doing something different have to kind of compress it into this format to make it work well, and at a slam most times yeah. there are literal judges with the literal yeah. score I mean, what I've often said is, you know, I'm not interested, again, in being the best poet. I'm interested in having a very healthy and great poetry community or communities that I can be a part of. So I think it's a, it's a different approach, um, for sure. I also think uh, sometimes, for example, back to Red River, sometimes the way to create an experiment is to put a mashup of two poets you, or performers you would not see together. So yeah. take someone yeah. out of slam and put them with a, like, uh, more experimental poet and see what that event feels like because part of the experiment is the audience is going to come so that they would never like come to something together so like I think there's, as far as a curator or maybe as a publisher podcast person there's probably interesting ways to think about how we put people and events together um, and how that changes like maybe the audience's notion of what a performance or a reading is no, and I like that. I like that. That's a great thing about collaborating with someone from a different, different area of the arts, or, or for sure, because the audience that shows up isn't just some of them don't like poetry at all. They, they, they or they think they don't, but they some of them come away liking it afterwards. And it's kind of nice to have an audience where it's not just people who are there because they've already decided they like poetry. I mean, I'll also say I love. The giant smorgasbord of contemporary American poetry. Yeah. I want it all to exist. It doesn't mean it's all like it's like going to the salad bar or whatever the buffet. It's not all the food I'm going to eat, but I'm glad some of you are all talking about the spinach. Other people only will talk about the mashed potatoes yeah, yeah, yeah. or the kind of salad dressing that's about. Okay. You know, I mean, it's that similar kind of like it should, and I'm glad it all it all exists. Um, I wonder though about how to do like cross community organizing, cross community events within genres, within kinds of poetry scenes or circles. And actually, back to this festival, I think this festival has been pretty good about mixing it. It doesn't seem like just one kind of poetry or person 
um, who's here to me. Well, uh, as a member of the uh, coordinator team for this festival, it, it's, you know, we looked at a hundred proposals this time. Oh, wow. You know, and we, we could only really pick them up. Maybe. You know, we could really only pick one, one you know. What do you struggle with anything? Do you struggle with anything? Do you have something? Do I struggle with poetry? Do you have something, that, <laughs> something that, like, you're like, they're like nails on the chalkboard. Oh, just like um, is there anything that you're like something I dislike in in other people's poetry, <laughs> or in my own poetry. Or in your own. Yeah. I mean, there's. Right. I mean, uh, I want to just begin the answer with like, isn't that why we write? Like, isn't that part of it? Don't we? Like, is it like we create that, we create a creative problem for ourselves, and then we're going to try to solve it? Like that yeah. kind of feels like what a a poetry project is or like what a mission statement is for a podcast or a reading series or a press like how do you live up to those to those values so um yeah I struggle with it every day I would say most of my uh, comrades in poetry poetry do uh maybe back to some of the stuff we were just circling around I care about experimentation as a kind of aesthetic which very directly and simply for me means I like I like things that make me think in new ways. Yeah. I like how my brain feels when I have to figure something out. But at the same time, I care about accessibility, meaning I care about inclusion, right? So I think that's kind of some of the line that my own poetics might move between, is like, how do I continue to push form um, and content for myself, for the reader, for the collaborator for others, but at the same time, how am I um, making sure that everyone feels like this is for them, or this is an invitation? Um, and you've luckily chosen two things there that are a little bit in conflict. A lot in conflict. So yeah, so, so that's... Hi, I'm Jennifer Carmen. I'm a poet. That's that's my... I'm joking. I'm here to like confess that's that's my poetry struggle. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we have this question that we ask a lot of poets uh, uh, in the past, but you know, we can ask it to you again. Uh, do you think poetry have day jobs? Should poets have day yeah. jobs? Wow, that's also a really loaded question. Um, well, under capitalism, we, we need day jobs. Um, and if you, so, like, here's the thing: under capitalism, if you don't have a day job, it means you're you're part of the one percent, right? So, like, you should be doing something with your time or energy to give back if others are having to work and and put their labor into it. Um, so, so there's that part, just the conditions. Of what at least at least American capitalism and what we live under. Um, should poets have day jobs? I, I think you should be able to choose whatever. I don't want. I don't want someone to dictate to me, so I wouldn't dictate to others. Um, in my case, uh, I teach at one of the city colleges in Chicago, but I specifically work in a free literacy program with immigrants and refugees, and I use creative writing to do literacy work. So I actually really like the work I do, and I, I care about my students, and I feel like I'm using creative writing in a useful way. I'm a part-time unionized city worker, a poet with a pension plan, so at least for now. Um, until the governor makes other decisions. Um, and I'm part of my union, so I feel like I'm a better writer because of the work I do, but I don't know if every writer would, would feel that way. I'm very, pro, yeah. I'm very pro-choice in this, this situation. Yeah, really so that's like, okay. I'm very, very pro-choice about most things. Yeah. So you have... We already mentioned the book, but we have your book from Convulsive Edition sitting sitting in front of you here. So I assume you're going to read read a poem. Yeah, sure, sure. But before you do that, do you want to tell us a little bit about how this collaboration with Bernadette worked? Yeah, you know, besides curating Red River, I curate some festivals um, in Chicago sometimes. 
Um, and so I was working and curating a festival at the art space we mentioned before, Lynx Hall, and I really wanted to try to bring Bernadette in, and I was working on a small budget as usual. And it just it was just hard to, you know, logistics, I think, about what's happened here in New Orleans, too. How do you line up people's schedules and budgets and everything so it could happen? So it was just, unfortunately, not able at that time to happen to have bring Bernadette in. Um, and so she was very generous to say, well... If you can't, if I can't come to Chicago, why don't you come here to my house? Um, she does sometimes host like weekend workshops um, or one day workshops, and so that was the beginning of the conversation. And then the first trip started out with the like, well, why don't you stay a week and we'll do some writing together? Um, and yeah, and being Bernadette, she took a very serious this idea of mentorship, um, walking in her little patch of woods, poetry state forest together, um, and yeah coming up with writing ideas and actually um, you know she's done these series uh, with other collaborators she did these 315 experiments where we would go to sleep and wake up at 315 in the morning and start writing um, so it was intense it was a little bit of like poetry boot camp when Bernadette yeah. is knocking on your door and yeah. waking you up to write at 315 in the morning um, but it was also great and generous and maybe made me think about the kind of mentorship that happened between poets at a different time, like um, meaning I was never uh, in Bernadette's classroom. It was not an MFA program. She jokes that the poetry workshops at her at her house are called the Porch School. So, like, I guess I'm a member of the, yeah, por- the, por- the Porch School of Poetics. Um, but it, it felt like a right way to think about another part of my poetry education. Um, and I, I have, I'm extremely grateful, of course, for that kind of mentorship as, as a female poet to have um, an idea of what it might be like to be... Uh, Kind of feral and wonderful seven-year-old female poet someday, right? We, yeah. we, all, we, all, we all need models. Feral. <laughs> I, I like to think of Bernadette as feral and, and feral poetics in the best way. Um, she self-identifies as an anarchist, so I mean, meaning, meaning, yeah. leaning, sure. leaning on that side too. So then Bernadette just said, "Well, you're coming back next summer, aren't you?" And I said, "Well, well yeah, yes, of course." And yeah. that's you know, again, when Bernadette Mayor says, "Are you coming back?" You say, "Yes, <laughs> please." Um, yeah, so that was probably about 10 years ago. Um, and so the chapbook that uh, was published by Convulsives um, is a portion of the work. There are other poems, because we just kept writing. So at some point, uh, Nate, uh, the, who I was working with, as far as adding the manuscript, was like, okay, I think this is, this is we could just keep, we could just keep waiting. So um, uh, with gratitude, some of, those, uh, some of these poems landed up in her book from New Directions, uh, Working Days. So that was very nice um, to see some, some of our collaborative, collaborative poems in there as well. Um, yeah, would you like to read Yeah, one? sure. I, I think the title poem, I know I read it the other night, but that seems like a great sure. one to, to record. Yeah. The Sexual Organs of the IRS. Bimbos in bikinis on horses at Passover. It's spring breakfast, beware of clouds. It's snow that's wafting like a Geiger Mueller counter, which doesn't waft but registers the degrees of blueness. The sea slug carries a disposable penis. It's a use-it-then-lose-it penis, like the guaranteed annual income promised in the past, not discussed in the present. But, oh, how could a penis be like an income? A penis isn't an income, but an income can be a penis, whereas your income can never be a vagina, though your vagina could be your income. Get it? There is in nature no disposable vagina because it doesn't stick out. It sticks in like a volcano. 
a supernova for the workers of the world reaching a maximum intrinsic luminosity and astounding astonishment be careful or you could light your hair on fire how precisely can one measure an object's position and momentum at the same time i got a supernova for christmas it had two slides it glowed i shared it with my sister it made our vaginas feel good at first we were shocked like when you see a creek monster but soon we noticed we had become spaceships cruising into jello like a grape or a pear piece i heard a purple jesus took his ancestral fork to the irs a sign around his neck a choir of angels chanting property is robbery property is robbery property is robbery at the risk of harshing my mellow i'd like to say my penis is a tree branch my penis is an electronic cigarette my penis is a water balloon my penis is an obelisk my penis is a pussy willow my penis is a monument in monument square troy new york my penis is the great wall of china my penis is a christmas tree my penis is a taffeta skirt my penis is tired and can't get up my penis is hungry i have to give it some meat my penis is vegetarian tofu only please important memo issued in the midst of a no trespass zone you are welcome here please refrain from not trespassing Nice. Oh, she's so fun to write. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that sounded fun to write. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's so great to be in New Orleans. Chicago, you want to plug out in this whole, you know? Well, it's going to happen outside of Chicago as far as, um, and we've got Red Rover coming up, a whole bunch of things um, on our schedule. But the thing I, I was thinking of first is, that um, in October, the And Now New Writing Festival will happen at Notre Dame in Indiana, so a lot of us will be participating in that. Um, and it's at a school, so back to like thinking about academic versus DIY, but what's really great about And Now, one, the idea of what is new writing is very open, um, but two, it's not just panels and talks, performances, instigations, collaborations are certainly welcome um, there. So for Red Rover, uh, in the summer, in July, we've been doing a walking poem where uh, our featured writers will be walking around and reading their poems on street corners. I think we'll be doing it in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago. That'll be in July. Um, so that's an event we're really looking forward to. In September, we do our Big Poets for Change event. I think some of it happens in New Orleans, too. Michael Rothenberg's project that started mm -hmm. um, in the United States but is now international, where the last Saturday in September... Uh, poets around the country and around the world get together to do some kind of poetry and activism event, whatever it's about, up to that community. Um, so that's been a big part of what uh, Red Rover's done usually with our fall programming. That's That'll be the end of September. So those are like some of the main things that we're working towards. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for everyone for listening. Yeah.